The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to this Friday edition of Scorebox with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. These are your headlines. Ukraine Airlines flight that crashed outside Tehran was likely shot down by an Iranian missile. As intelligence from the US, UK and Canada suggests the tragedy could have been unintentional. A divided House votes to limit President Trump's powers to take military action against Iran, with the measure now headed to the Republican-led Senate floor. Apple shares hit a fresh all-time high, boosting Wall Street as fresh data shows iPhone sales in China grew 18% in December. UK lawmakers greenlight Boris Johnson's Brexit deal, ending three and a half years of uncertainty about Britain's divorce from the EU. A very good morning to you. A Ukraine international airplane that crashed near Tehran was likely brought down by an Iranian missile, according to the US, Canada and Britain. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said it, quote, may have been unintentional. Video has emerged of the plane shortly after takeoff, which the New York Times says shows an object exploding near the plane. Well, NBC's Dan Sheneman has more. Citing satellite images and communications intercepts, intelligence sources say Ukrainian Airlines Flight 752 was shot down by a missile. All 176 people on board were killed, including 63 Canadians. This new information reinforces the need for a thorough investigation into this matter. The Boeing 737 traveling to Kiev took off from Tehran at 6.12 Tuesday morning. Two minutes after takeoff, sources say two Russian-made missiles fired at the plane. Moments later, an explosion, and the airliner fell to earth. There was a lot of evidence of puncture marks in various parts of the fuselage, engine casings, and, and other debris, which means that something external to the aircraft, like shrapnel, blew up and then punctured the, uh, the fuselage itself. U.S. officials suspect the missile was fired by accident while Iran was in a state of high alert just hours after launching missiles at U.S. troops based in Iraq. However, there are unanswered questions. Why they decided to take off three, four hours after an attack instead of just saying, let's stay on the ground for a while. Iran has denied that a missile could have shot down the plane and dismissed any suggestion the government has not been cooperative. Dan Sheneman. NBC News. The U.S. National Transportation Safety Board has been formally invited to join the investigation into the crash by Iranian authorities. The authority has designated a representative to the probe, while Boeing said it is supporting the agency. However, U.S. sanctions against Iran mean it is unclear what role the NTSB will play in the inquiry. Stunningly complicated because, of course, Iran and U.S., huge protagonists in the Middle East as well. Normally, Boeing would get involved in any Boeing crash, would be on-site helping investigators get involved as well. But, of course, Boeing uh, has links to the U.S. government as well. Huge U.S. corporation, very difficult to see 
how Iran will allow them to take a very proactive role uh, in checking out what's going on at the crash scene. And you can see the motivation from the Boeing side to be involved in the investigation, given all the problems they've had with a, a Boeing MAX aircraft. They want to make sure that there are no other issues. And what we've now seen, the way the story has uh, transpired, the owner seems to be back on the Iranians, not on Boeing, which yeah, was absolutely. where we started out the conversation. And, and I'll make the point again, because, I mean, you're alluding to it, but this was not an Air 737 MAX plane, was it? That's it, was, right. it was one of the it's other models. One, yeah, and different software as well. Mm -hmm. And so another uh, key story, the uh, US House of Representatives has passed a resolution designed to limit President Trump's military actions against Iran. The War Powers Bill passed along party lines and will now proceed to the Republican-controlled Senate for debate. A White House spokesperson described the measure as ridiculous. So let's get to Karen, who's looking at the overnight walls and uh, some very interesting data on the jobless claims as well, which augurs for the payroll today, Karen. Yes, indeed. Uh, data watching day to day for the payrolls. But I was going to walk you through these numbers that we saw on the street. Record levels again, intraday and also by the finish. So uh, we had risk sent coming back to the fore as we saw the events around the Middle East start to quieten down for markets at least, thinking that we're not going to see more violence and escalation in the aggression between the US and Iran, that now we're back to economic sanctions. And that's something the market can take within its stride. Don't forget, as we also cast our eye towards next week, we're hoping that uh, phase one of a trade deal will be in pen to paper moment between the US and China. So the market has had many reasons to cheer the better appetite out there, the better backdrop that they are seeing. And uh, it was really across the board from the Dow, the S&P to the Nasdaq, a record day for a number of different components of the market as well. Technology very much out in front, industrials, consumer discretionary, healthcare, all hitting fresh record levels by the finish. But when it comes to communications and technology in particular, Apple, a big component, and a big driver for those three major indices. And uh, this is how it stacks up. The Apple bouncing 2.1%. It uh, was a stronger trade versus some of the other technology names. This as we had news of iPhone sales in China through uh, government sources that in December, there was a jump of about 18% year on year. And don't forget, as we've had this trade war that's persisted right throughout 2019, there have been concerns about the technology sales, particularly of Apple devices in China. And it required some nimble moves by the corporate headquarters in Cupertino to reduce pricing on some iPhones to try and bolster those sales. It seems like it may have been enough and that has been a very strong trade for Apple in session as a result in the back of the news flow. Let's take a quick look at the dollar and how it has been faring versus some of the other majors. It's on the back foot versus the yuan. 6.93 the level this morning. 109 the handle we've now climbed to versus the Japanese yen. It's been quite a roller coaster week for the safe haven traders and investors. Uh, quickly sought yen at the start of the week and now have been winding down some of those exposures as uh, we look to close out the week. Euro dollar 111 where we're perched and 130.87 on sterling. Not helped out in the last 24 hours or so from some comments from the BOE from Mark Carney suggesting fairly swift actions if we continue to see some economic weakness. That's knocked us off that 131 perch uh, as we try to recover some territory morning session. Asian markets, uh, this is how we are setting up across the trading day, as you can see, mixed picture, but don't forget the payrolls report out of the United States will cross after these markets are shut. And uh, just a reminder on what we are expecting, as uh, all eyes are on uh, the strength of the data and what that could mean for central bank policy. 160,000 jobs expected to be created in December, wages growing by 3.1% year over year, according to Dow Jones. So worth watching out on those numbers. 
there is a, a modest tick high for both the Japanese market, firmer, and for the Australian market too. A uh, quick look at oil and how we've traded over the course of this week. It has been a fairly strong roller coaster ride too for this trade around the risk on, risk off appetite. 70 the handle we saw in Brent at one stage in the Middle East uh, conflict being in focus for many investors. Uh, but over the week, we're now shed close to 5% as we peel right back to that 65 handle. Also in WTI, below the 60 handle now. So uh, 59 the handle we are trading up this morning. Steve. Thank you very much indeed for that. Well, look, you're finishing on oil, so let's um, start our conversation with Chris Watling, CEO and Chief Market Strategist at Longview Economics. Really nice to see you. Happy yes, New Year. Happy New Year. Um, look, uh, there's so much going on in the world at the moment, and there's so many uh, strong ideas going around, and we want to come to your S&P idea a little bit later on as well. But yes. you have got a call on Brent at the moment as well. There are so many inputs as well. But in terms of your idea, I was uh, captivated by your 8th of June, Jan piece, only a couple of days ago, move short Brent March futures. Good morning and explain. Good morning, yes. (laughs) Well, I mean, there's a few things behind it. Geopolitics, um, supply and demand fundamentals and and really technicals in the market. So, I mean, really over the last few months, it's been exacerbated by the the, the geopolitics recently. But over the last few months, uh, the markets have become pretty bullish on oil. Um, it's rallied quite hard. It's become overbought. It's become quite a, a more popular long. So I always like to lean against that. That's kind of your technical backdrop. And then, of course, we had the last spurt up to 70 intraday on the back of um, the geopolitics. And then what we've been doing is some, doing some work on, on how much does geopolitics really influence the oil price and how long-lasting and enduring it is. And, and what you find is most times out of 10, there's so many examples, most times out of, you know, eight times out of 10, it has no influence beyond a few I'm days. I'm really glad you said that, because last week when we, when we, well, start of this week, when we were talking about the geopolitics influencing oh. asset classes, we, we made the point, which you, you've always made as well, that you have to step back and say markets do not react how you think they do from geopolitics. Particularly at the moment. We've seen so much risk on appetite over the past year or so with extra central bank stimulus. But I want to know how far back you went when you were looking at the geopolitical impact. Uh, well, we did this one on oil for 10 years. I mean, there were right. so many examples of the right Iran. Frame? Did you have to, were you thinking about going further back and looking at further um, sort of oil done, crises in the past? I've done 30 years on the S&P 500 geopolitics. And honestly, I, I, you know, it makes me wonder why we're the bother talking about it. Really? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it I, does. Sometimes it is really important. Of and course, it's all like 73. I mean, yeah. you know, that, that, that yeah. changed the world. Yeah. For a decade, but exactly. thereafter, there are not so many. But most of the time, it's just a talking point and something for people to chat about, and it and it, it might affect prices for a day or two, and then or even a few hours, and then it just fades. and And actually, what it does is it creates an opportunity to do the opposite. You did mention, and I, I was very careful to note your points about your short Brent call. You said the technicals, the geopolitics, and the supply and demand. You didn't mention, um, well, I suppose supply is part of this, but investment in U.S. shale, because U.S. shale has been the dampener. Uh, and there is a grave concern in the industry, and I, I hear it all the time from my, my friends and people I meet in the industry, that they're worried about investment in shale in 2020 and 2021, which means you're not going to see, see more supply coming on. So as much as the president talks about energy independence and how we don't need um, Middle Eastern oil, there is a, a big question mark over that in the very medium term. There is. And in fact, we, we did some work on that about a month ago, um, pushing back on that thesis. So, you know, I understand the chatter and that's the market's concern. But actually, if you look at it, there's um, a lot of uh, duck wells, drilled, uncompleted wells they've been tapping okay. uh, to get the supply going. And there's been a consolidation in the industry. So a lot of the small fish have gone bust. And the big yes. guys have swallowed them up. So, so it's slightly misleading when you look at the data. You can get, I think, the wrong impression. I think shale looks to me 
Uh, productivity's continued to look good. It's looked to me like it's going to continue to outperform to the upside. What about the utilisation rates? If you, I'm, I, I don't know the answers, but you've done the work. So there was a, another big concern, and there are the likes of OPEC always like to chuck this one around as well. Oh, well, the utilisation rates, the, the, the rates fade very, very quickly in these wells. Is that a fact? Yeah, so this is the productivity story, yeah. I mean, this, has been, um, this story's been around forever. I mean, I remember talking about this in 2014, productivity is going to go in shale, and, and the, you know, the technology keeps improving, they keep delivering to the so upside. Extraction rates keeping increasing. I want to just pull out your, your comment that OPEC discipline is weakening, which I, I'm curious about because there's been a fairly strong OPEC-OPEC plus alliance over the past 12 months or so mm. when you've seen some success at uh, trimming expectations as a result. Mm. The most recent re report we had was that OPEC oil uh, fell in December as Nigeria and Iraq adhered more closely to pledged regulations. Does this change in 2020 in Iraq, obviously a key country to watch at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen over the last sort of 12, 18, 24 months is OPEC, you know, Saudi's been taking up the slack of the, of the lack of discipline elsewhere. And, um, you know, and comments out of Novak in Russia, the oil minister the other day kind of made the point that they're, they're going off the, the deal, they're going off the idea of, of restricting. And, and if you go through all the OPEC um, um, countries and look at their compliance over the last... It's not that good quite a lot. No, and I was going to add, the, OPEC has been incredibly lucky in one way that their deal with the Russians has been utterly flattered by... And I think I can say this with impunity, the incompetence, the corruption, the maladministration, the uh, political interference that is the Venezuelan oil industry. Yeah. So you take off oil supply from the biggest reserve country in the planet, albeit not the right kind of reserve for many people, it does tend to flatter your compliance a little bit, i.e. the Venezuelan oil industry is a disaster. That's right. And the Saudis have over, over complied yeah. themselves. And so, yeah, so, yeah, you're quite right about Venezuela and it's continued that way. So, so the, the interesting thing, I think, about the supply story is there's all this OPEC supply in the, in the background that they can bring off if they, if they want to. Shell's delivering. So there must be a cap on the yeah. oil price. OK, excellent. Well, that, that's uh, Chris's view on that one, 65.31, where Brent is currently trading. We'll come back to Chris because he's got a very interesting call on the S&P. I'm not going to tell you what it is. <coughs> we'll come back to it after a short break. There you go. That'll keep you watching on the podcast as well. Listening ahead. Slow down ahead. That's a question mark. Ahead. Slow down ahead. Hmm. Uh, the US labour market is expected to call in December. Is it? Is it? Well, there's a question. Uh, we'll bring you the latest Wall Street estimates after the break. And I mentioned the podcast. Oh, it's a goodie. Or just a reminder, you can tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. It is Payrolls Friday, and I dare say an interesting one to watch out for for the markets, given there is some sketchy ideas about where central banks could be moving this year. 
All eyes uh, on what may happen with a trade war in phase one, how we progress and what the implications are for central bank activity. Therefore, the data also incredibly important at this point. So the U.S. employment data today is expected to show a slight labor market slowdown in December. The non-farm payrolls number for the month is seen rising by 160,000 positions, according to Dow Jones estimates, that is down from 266,000 in the month of November. The unemployment rate is estimated to hold steady at 3.5%. And when it comes to wages, average hourly wages are seen higher by 0.3%. So this is what we're setting up for today, Steve. Excellent. Right. So Steve Leesman has plenty more on this. Most Wall Street forecasters are looking for a modest cooling in the job market when the government reports payrolls at 8.30 a.m. Eastern time tomorrow. But new data from Bank of America using its own big data is looking for a sharper slowdown. But could it be lower? Bank of America has a new model in which it aggregates and anonymizes direct deposit data from Bank of America accounts and tries to forecast the private sector employment. The B of A model looks for payroll growth of just 54,000 compared with the three consensus of 160,000. But hold on, because not even B of A relies solely on this data. Chief U.S. economist Michelle Meyer says it's now just an input into the B of A jobs model. So that forecast is for 140,000. It appears as if the new data has led Bank of America to a below average forecast. Like all private sector data, this data is going to be limited by Bank of America's market share. B of A has the biggest deposit base in North America, but it's still just north of 10%. The data is seasonally adjusted, and there could be geographic and income biases since some poor people don't have bank accounts, and Bank of America may not be equally strong in all parts of the country. These are early days for the promise of big data to give a clearer picture of the broad economy. The Federal Reserve uses credit card spending data to get a better picture of retail sales. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics is using big data on apparel for part of its inflation report. But over time, those data series, along with the kind of data that B of A is using to forecast payrolls, could give a better picture of the U.S. economy in real time. Steve Leisman, CNBC Business News. The Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida says the U.S. economy has started the year in a good place. Speaking at an event in New York, Mr. Clarida played down fears of a slowdown in global economic growth. The downside risk to the global outlook has maybe diminished uh, uh, a bit. And there's some early signs that maybe the decline in global growth is, is bottoming out. Uh, but again, our baseline projection is really for 2020, uh, in terms of GDP growth, unemployment, and inflation, uh, to be pretty similar to last year. With a proviso that we certainly are focused and indeed very focused on getting the uh, underlying rate of inflation in the economy back up to our 2% objective. And- uh, Longview Economics has a positive view for the S&P, forecasting 10 to 20% upside through 2020. Chris Watling still with us from the aforementioned organization. Um, I love your timing calls because they're, they're, they're very delicate. 10 to 20% rally, but not yet. But not yet. But not yeah. yet. But not yet. <laughs> but I mean, they want to be like, I need to get on that bus. We were just talking about it off camera. We need to get on that bus, but you're telling us yeah. not now? What am I supposed to do with all this money I'm hoarding? Not me, well, of course, our viewers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you've you got to time the time getting on the bus that, right. Otherwise, you miss bar. it. Yeah, yes. it's important. It's yes. important. No, I mean, I think market's a little bit overcooked in the near term. They've run pretty hard, pretty fast. And um, all sorts of models are suggesting one should be a bit cautious on a multi-week 
four, five, six weeks. Why should I be cautious? I've got 20% upside, according to Chris Watling from Longview Economics. Why don't I just buy it? I'll take my dip if I get it wrong. I might do a bit of dollar cost averaging. I'll still make my 20%. Well, I think you probably, yeah, you could do that. But this you is probably, your words, not mine, or my viewers' words interpreting your call. Yeah, but you'd probably rather make 25 than 20. I mean, if there is a dip, I mean, I don't know whether we're going to go sideways for a bunch of weeks or give back a, a handful of percent. Uh, it's very hard to tell between the two. But either way, I wouldn't, I wouldn't jump on too early. Well, we've had records every night. And if you look at the valuations now, the S&P high versus historical levels, about 18.6 times forward earnings where the S&P is trading at. And if you consider the past five years, the average ratio was 16.7, longer time frame, 10 years, was 14.9. So even if there is a dip, we're still in this very sort of punchy territory in terms of valuation. Yeah, I mean, valuation, the thing about valuation is it doesn't really help you forecast 12-month returns on the S&P 500. In fact, you, it doesn't really help you forecast two-year or three-year returns. But you make a fair point, the S&P PE ratio is high. But So on a standalone basis, the market looks expensive. But actually, if you look at it on a relative basis, it's very cheap. If you look at it relative to high yield credit, uh, relative yield spread, or if you look at it relative to uh, sovereign bonds, it actually is exceptionally cheap. Um, so it depends how you think about it. Well, let's think about it from another perspective. A lot of technology names now part of the S&P, and one of the arguments on the way up was that you've not had such a high growth component of the markets for such a long time. But if you look at those same stocks now, very overvalued on a PE rate, uh, is it sustainable? We've got a whole bunch of regulation coming, maybe digital taxes. It's going to take a lot for these companies to keep on growing at the same pace. So therefore, given the overrepresentation of these technology names, isn't there a risk that growth will be slower because of those same tech names that have carried the market so far forward? Well, I, I, you know, I think the market might rotate a little bit from here into cyclicals. I think we're, gonna, we're looking for a cyclical upswing globally to come through and continue. It's starting to come through and I think it will continue through this year. So from that perspective, you can get a bit of uh, valuation pressure easing in some of the tech names. But having said that, I mean, some of them aren't there. They're not outrageously expensive. There are clearly ones you can find that are ridiculously expensive. But some of the bigger ones, you know, the Apples and Microsoft, they're not off the charts in terms of their PE ratio, particularly when you think of it in terms of growth, the peg ratio. Yeah, I want to park that conversation a little bit because we've got a, a young gentleman from Guangzhou joining us in a few moments' time, uh, our, our very own Arjun, to speak very specifically about Apple. Perfect. So we'll park that side of it as well. So look, you've almost debunked, and I'm, my word's not yours, almost debunked the, the role of geopolitics in, in the current market. Uh, I think it's fair. Yep. Uh, you've almost debunked the role of valuations in the, the rally over yep. a longer term. What about the role of economics as well? Because the minutiae that Karen and I pour over, I wonder if we're wasting our time sometimes. I wonder if that <laughs> army of economists are wasting time because we're looking at Average hourly earnings, is it 3.3, 3.4, 3.5? Uh, is the payroll going to be 180, 170, one? It almost is like, there does seem to be a nonchalance, to use the American word, yeah. um, in the market at the moment, uh, that actually they don't care about yeah. the minutiae of the data. They're just going to buy it regardless. So yes. do I care about the economics? Should yes. I care about the economics? Is nonchalance an American word? No, it's not. It's just no. the old George W. Yeah. Bush gag, wasn't it? Did the French have a, a, a word for entrepreneur? Sorry, oh, it's a, oh, I see. It was a, it was a derivative joke. You probably yeah. didn't get it. No, it was good. Um, um, so the question is, does economics matter? Absolutely, because economics affects the way the central bank behaves. And actually, um, you know, you, 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 you know, as we said, there's no correlation between earnings expectations in the start of the year and returns. And there's no correlation between the PE ratio. But what does matter is, is where the economic momentum is or is not. 
and where liquidity goes and where central bank policy goes, central bank largesse or central bank tightening. Oh, largesse, another American word. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> Which can also then be linked to a political cycle. And this year it's a presidential election again, 2020. So central banks are typically seen as being a little more reluctant to act in such years. Does that have a knock-on effect for stock market action? Well, it would do if it's true, but I, I, again, I don't think that's the case. I think that, 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 that thesis works in the month of the election. I think other months, well, my, my, my sense is that the central bankers look through it and they ignore it and, and they're indifferent even with, to it. Even with Trump in the White House? I mean, even isn't that with the Trump in the White House. Because he's been the most vocal president against a central bank that we've seen in many, many years. Yeah. So typically there may be a, a we can stay through this and we'll just keep our policy active until a month before. That doesn't seem to ring true with Trump in the White House. Well, I think these guys are professionals at the, at the central bank, and they they realise they've got to be independent. You say professionals or politicians? I said professionals. I know. Do you think they're politicians? Because I'm worried about the, the this this impression we have about central bank independence. In what sense? In the fact that we've got a politician in charge of the ECB now. Oh, I see. Well, that now, that maybe is a, a fair point. That's a slightly different ball game, but. Um, we were talking about the Fed, so... Yeah, yeah, but then you mentioned central banks. Yeah, so, may, you know, fair enough. I think the ECB's makeup may well be changing to a degree. We now have a lawyer in charge who is yes, a do. former politician. I mean, a very qualified lawyer, if we may very say qualified, so. Very qualified, very qualified. But so, and clearly she's already expressed this um, idea of shifting something towards climate change in terms uh, of the way one thinks she's, about monetary she's policy. Echo Draghi, get on, get on the bus, fiscal government, on the fiscal side governments. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.